Welcome to 1951 Down Place, the home of Hammer Films discussion. Each month, our hosts, Casey, Derek and Scott, take a look at the film catalogue of the legendary Hammer Films production, one picture at a time. Covering everything from the famous Hammer gothic horror films to their science fiction films, their thrillers, their film noirs and comedies, this podcast will offer critical opinion, production notes and historical facts about the films that make Hammer great. Make yourself comfortable, have a cup of tea, and welcome to 1951 Down Place. Hello and welcome everyone to episode number 20 of the 1951 Down Place podcast. My name is Scott and my co-hosts Casey and Derek will be along in a few moments. For this episode, we're going to look at the Hammer film from 1958, The Revenge of Frankenstein. The first and only direct sequel to 1957's The Curse of Frankenstein and the number two film on Derek's top five list. Revenge of Frankenstein stars the downplacer's hero, Mr. Peter Wilton Cushing, as the good Dr. Victor Stein, a.k.a. the Baron von Frankenstein. Also appearing in this film is Derek's personal hero, Michael Ripper. In the director's chair, we find one Terrence Fisher. Now, we've covered several of this masterful director's films already on 1951 Downplace, including The Curse of Frankenstein, The Horror of Dracula, the Hound of the Baskervilles, The Brides of Dracula, and Dracula, Prince of Darkness. Now we'll dive into Hammer's Revenge of Frankenstein from 1958, right after this very important message. I'm a non-attorney spokesman. Have you or a loved one been adversely affected by anthropophagy due to gross negligence of the Frank's female fabrication or any representatives of FFF? Don't wait. Call the legal team at Kipps and Ratcliffe today. Medical bills and lost wages can be devastating, so you need to act quickly to make sure you receive the compensation that you deserve. Recent studies have shown an alarming connection to anthropophagy and the females created during the Build-A-Babe 30 Minutes or It's Free promotion that Frank's female fabrication ran last year. Doctors have determined that the brain in these creatures was not given sufficient enough time to mature, causing rare cases of cannibalism. The Federal Trade Commission recently enacted a recall of both the Monroe and Welch models created during this promotion. If you or a loved one have been injured by one of these creations, you must call Kipps and Ratcliffe today for a free consultation on your legal options. At Kipps and Ratcliffe, we get results, and there is never a cost to you unless we recover upon your behalf. So let our experienced legal team go to work on your case. Call Kipps and Ratcliffe at 1-800-BAD-FRANK to discuss your legal rights and options. In the year 1860, I, Baron Frankenstein, was sentenced to death on the guillotine. Why? Why had the world condemned me? Because I was the first man to create another living being. The first unnatural man. But because his brain was affected, because he could not control his animal instincts, he was hunted down and brutally murdered. I have escaped the guillotine, and I shall avenge the death of my creation.
isn't born yet. You will witness scenes never before seen on a motion picture screen. You will see Frankenstein take the eyes of one man, the brain of another. You will see lifeless hands begin to move. You will see a man turn into the world's most terrifying monster. September 1957, Hammer Films entered into a worldwide distribution deal with Columbia Pictures International, and the film that we're covering this month in 1951 Down Place is the third film in that deal, and easily, I think, one of the more important films uh, to come out of Hammer at the time because it established the president of franchises for Hammer Films, and we're talking about The Revenge of Frankenstein from 1958, directed by Terrence Fisher, starring my man. Michael Ripper. I mean, Peter Cushing. <laughs> now, this was the second film put out by Hammer uh, that would follow the adventures of our lovable Dr. Frankenstein or Baron Frankenstein. Lovable, maybe not so much. But uh, yeah, this is the second time that Peter Cushing would play Frankenstein for the company. I believe this is the only one that t- you can tie directly back to the previous one, isn't it? Y- yeah, that's true. Uh, this is something that picks up pretty much right after the end of the first film. The other films, he's still playing the Dr. Frankenstein or the Baron Frankenstein, and there are some links here and there. But, for example, something that we see at the very end of this film uh, involving a tattoo, you don't ever see that again. You know, that sort of thing. So it's not a true sequel. The other films are not true sequels. But in my mind, I'm still able to find ways to link them together just because that's how my brain works. But yeah, this is a true sequel. And almost the entire crew came back to play. But we'll get to that here in a moment. But before we get started, Casey's back on the show. Yay! Did you uh, survive um, the alien parasites in the food? I did. The probing was a little rough, but I survived the parasites. Uh, I don't know. Whoa. <laughs> we, we might be oversharing here. Unless that was the treatment. I don't know. Nah, we're back and we're good to go. Awesome. Because, uh, you know, we, we know a good doctor who uh, could help you out if you need a little bit more help there. <laughs> Well, I've got my fleas and dirt, so I think I'm good for now. <laughs> was this the first time either one of you had seen this movie? It was first this, for me. Yeah, this was actually the first for me, too, because this isn't the movie I thought it was. Once oh. I got down and said it, there was uh, another Frankenstein movie that I was thinking that we were sitting down to watch. And then once I got into this one, I realized I hadn't seen this one yet. So it was doubly enjoyable. <laughs> Which one did you think this was? Uh, to be honest with you, I couldn't tell for sure. I didn't have a chance to look it up beforehand. There was another one, though, that I know his escape... Towards the end of the movie, his escape from the lab involved a trapdoor in his lab that led to like a uh, stream underwater. There was another one. I can't think of the name of the one. Uh, it may have been the one with the uh, horrible, the, hor- the later one with the horribly designed uh, Frankenstein's monster. 
and I'm just kind of rambling at this point, so I couldn't say for sure. <laughs> hey, you're hopped up on allergy meds. All right. I am. <laughs> Things are going to get real weird here in a bit, so don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> and Scott, you said this was your first time, too? This was the first time that I had watched the film. I, you know, I obviously had seen uh, The Curse of Frankenstein because we did that one in a previous episode. Ever since we'd watched that, I was wondering how he was going to escape the guillotine at the end of that film. So at least I had that answered for me. There you go. Well, this is my number two film. If you go to our website and look at our list of top five Hammer films, on my list, this is my number two film. It's also one of my absolute favorite sequels of all time. I'm a big fan of this one, and I was thrilled that it came up in the uh, in the lineup for us to cover. Uh, let's see. I think at this point, both Casey and I have had four of our five favorite films covered here on the show. Sorry about your luck, Scott. <laughs> let's see. Scott's had, let's see, one, two, three. No, Scott's had four as well. Oh, there you go. Yeah, we're still missing my number one. Which we'll be getting to here eventually. Uh, let's see. For, the, for those playing along at home, uh, the ones that are missing from our list is Vampire Circus for Casey, Fear in the Night for me, and Five Million Miles to Earth for Scott. It's Quatermass in the Pit. Thank you very much. Oh, did hey. you change it from Revenge of She? Oh, Yes, I did. It was tough, but I went back and forth. (laughs) You got to be, I don't know, man. (laughs) Yeah, well, it depends on the day of the week. Some days it might be four sided triangle. You never know. Ah, you son of a. Uh, speaking of which, uh, do we want to talk about this now or do we want to wait? You know, let's talk about it real quick now. Here on the Facebook page. There is still a poll to see what movie we're going to be covering in Listener Pick Month, which is what, in June or July? July. So what are, what's the voting at now? At last time I looked, it was uh, very close between the four-sided triangle and uh, the seven golden vampires. Well, when we recorded last with just Scott and I, it was a dead tie. But as of this recording right now, four-sided triangle has 15 votes. Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires has 12. Ooh. Yep. Oh, and Vengeance of She has one. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm glad I've locked it down to where you can only vote once. <laughs> uh, that poll does close in mid-May, so by the time this comes out, you've got about 15 days to make your voice heard and uh, help us remove Four-Sided Triangle from the uh, punchline of many future episodes because it'll probably be the one that wins but you know I don't want to wait anything I still have Moon Zero Two in the back of my pocket (laughs) I want to do that one so bad (laughs) so do I because I can talk about Mystery Science Theater 3000 there you go there you go all right, back on track. Revenge of Frankenstein. I had seen this one over and over and over again. Uh, this was one that I had watched pretty much immediately after I had watched Curse of Frankenstein. I think I talked about this back in episode one when I was talking about my exposure to Hammer. I had a guy who had brought in a couple of VHS tapes to the video store I had worked at that had eight hours of, fi- of Hammer films on each one of these tapes because they were recorded on the SLP speed or whatever. And he had all the Frankensteins on like a couple of tapes and all the dry kills on a couple of tapes. And I just sat down and plowed through them just one after the other, after the other. So I got to see these, you know, for the first time, it's kind of like a little mini double feature in my home. 
I think it held up, uh, you know, as a sequel, and you know, I still enjoy it now as a standalone film. Like I said, it's my favorite, one of my favorite sequels of all time, uh, right up there with uh, Breaking Two and Vengeance of She. Um, did you say Breaking Two? I, I did. All right. <laughs> Not Police Academy, uh, Citizens on Patrol. I know that was a that's a tough one. That's a tough one. Citizens on Patrol. <laughs> Learn something new every day. Wow. I just can't wait to hear this playback as he's throwing in music from all of these films we just mentioned. <laughs> yeah. I think I do have a soundtrack for Police Academy 4. That is Citizens on Patrol, right? I believe so, and I'm not surprised you have it. <laughs> That's the one with the skateboarders, right? Yeah. I don't know. I've, I've, I've never seen it, so... <laughs> Oh, I have to be a big fan of the entire Police Academy franchise. Thank you very much. You know, the music from the first film is a lot more majestic than it has any right to be. It's very epic and moving and stirring. Only on 1951 Downplace can we go from Hammer to Police Academy. <laughs> <laughs> okay, back on track. Revenge of Frankenstein. <laughs> All right, do you want, should we just dive into it? Let's do it. Yeah. Okay. Because <laughs> if you don't, I'm just going to keep rambling about Police Academy and who knows what else. <laughs> All right. Well, Revenge of Frankenstein does pick up pretty much... Uh, Right after the events of Curse of Frankenstein, we see uh, Dr. Frankenstein, of course, uh, played by our man Peter Cushing, and he's being walked out to the uh, guillotine to um, carry out the sentence that he received in the first movie of death. And um, one thing I want to say right now is that uh, my wife was very taken with uh, Mr. Cushing's appearance as he's walking to the guillotine, full beard and mustache, flowing open shirt. Um, she was uh, quite taken there. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, we see him uh, climbing the stairs. We've got, we got a priest, and we have a kind of a, a disfigured humpback type of character that's, I'm guessing, working at the prisons, walking him up there. And we've got the executioner. And um, the, the priest says a little prayer. The camera follows the blade up. And then, boom, the blade comes down. Which seems kind of odd. You're thinking that, uh-oh, you know, our main character is hadn't even made it to the title sequence but uh, no fear as the next thing we see it's uh three years later and the good doctor now going by the name of dr stein has uh, relocated uh, from switzerland to carlsbrook germany nobody's gonna figure that out no not <laughs> at all and he set up a, a thriving medical practice um and he's Basically stealing patients from all the other doctors in town, and they're not too happy about it. I ask you, gentlemen, what do we really know about him? What do any of us know? Nothing at all. He came here three years ago and set himself up in practice. Before then, no one had even heard of him. Where did he study? Where did he take his degree? What's his background? Do any of you know? No. No. No more do I. Yet here he is, well-established, the most popular doctor in Carlsbrook, by all accounts. He hasn't even applied for a place on the, on the medical council. 
I've even heard he says he can do without the council. <laughs> Looks as though he's right there, doesn't it? He's managed to steal half my best patients. And mine. And mine. And mine. And mine. And mine. Exactly. And mine, too. We get this great scene of all the doctors at, I'm assuming, some secret meeting that you know, <laughs> at midnight on some random Tuesday. And yeah. they're... <laughs> They all have to like have a secret handshake to get into the to the meeting there, and they're talking about Doctor Stein's take half my patients. He's taking half of my patients too, and they sound <laughs> just like that, just yeah. like that. Well, it's funny though too because the doctors' union in that little village, which seems like it's a very small village, you think of the times and stuff like that, but they roll like a uh, you know a mafia family. <laughs> Yeah. Well, yeah, it's a small village, but then again, there's, what, 16 doctors? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) The healthcare in this town is really good. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, not really good, turns out, but... (laughs) But uh, we've got uh, Dr. Stein, and you know they're complaining that not only is he stealing the patients, but he's also set up a, uh, basically a a clinic, a public hospital, and he's helping out the poor. Well, how dare he? (laughs) I tell you, man, it's Obamacare all over again. I'm just saying. (laughs) Stein care. So these these doctors decide, you know, we got to put a stop to it, even though they really don't have any power to stop him. Yeah, what are they going to do? Yeah, they're going to go talk to him. Oh, well. (laughs) So they they decide that they're going to go down to his clinic and talk to him so the the leader of the the group of doctors, the most uh, vocal uh, one against him, and uh, then Doctor Doctor Cleave is that Doctor Cleave, the youngest doctor at the table, the one who clearly does not belong with the others here because he's young. That's right. Yes. Played by Francis Matthews, who we've seen in movies that we've covered here on the show before, like a Dracula film and such. So he's got some hammer cred as well. And, you know, about the medical council real quick, the president, the, the head guy played by Charles Lloyd Pack, what an, just, he's this buffoon-like character. And I, I worry about the medical care, the health care in this town, if it's being run by that guy. <laughs> well, that's why everybody's going to Dr. Stein. Uh, that's true. <laughs> but they, they send the delegation to go talk to, uh, to Dr. Stein. And um, the Baron, you know, the, his helper goes and t- says, you know, the three members from the, the medical community are here to talk to you. And he basically tells them to go and wait in the main ward where all the, the poor people are suffering. And he's hoping to make them as uncomfortable as possible. And so well, that's these, where all the fleas are. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so you got these three well-dressed gentlemen being led into the poor clinic hospital waiting room area where all these men are <laughs> unwashed flea bitten evil smelling you know the, the the head guy is like taking out a, a handkerchief and he's covering his mouth and nose because he just can't stand the stand the stench there in the room oh, this way gentlemen this way this is intolerable Gentlemen, you must remember that these are the poor. The stench is enough to kill me. Uh, Dr. Stein says for you to make yourselves comfortable in here. Comfortable? You tell Dr. Stein. There's Dr. Stein, gentlemen, looking after the poor and needy. That was. I just thought that was hilarious because it did, you know... Showcase the aristocracy of the of the time and stuff like that, just because it wasn't like the smell of 
festering wounds or anything like that. It was the stink of the poor people. So then uh, the good doctor, uh, Stein, uh, he does uh, walk in the, into the room and start uh, doing his rounds. And the, uh, the, three, the three doctors basically tell him that, you know, we've extended an offer to, for you to come and join us and, and be one of us. And he's, he's like, I'm really honored. Well, do you accept it? No. <laughs> well, hmm? what can I do for you? Well, uh, I am the president of the Medical Council. Congratulations. At our last meeting, it was agreed that you should become a member. Really? Have this new man washed when I look at him. I'm greatly honored, gentlemen. Then you accept? No. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I love Cushing. In the, I mean, I love Cushing and everything. But it's in this scene where he's really kind of, he's a wise ass. Yes. I mean, he's great. And he's like this for the rest of the movie, too. It's it's wonderful. Yeah, definitely. It feels, if you compare this with the original, that this is the sequel to, it feels like a natural progression because it's even more so than what he was a cocksure in the first movie. It's grown at this point, too. So you can see it as a natural extension of his character in the first film. Yeah. He he basically tells off those three guys that uh, he's not going to join them and he's not going to stop. He's going to continue to do the work that he's doing here with the poor people. They end up leaving, and uh, you know, during the course of his examinations, he does find uh, uh, one guy that's got a whole bunch of tattoos on his arm, and but he's having pain in the arm. The doc- and Doctor Stein basically says, "You got to lose it." And he's like, "What? What is your What is your profession?" And he's like, "I'm a pickpocket, sir." <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, "Well, you're gonna have to use your other hand or learn a new profession." <laughs> I love that the IMDb uh, calls this character Tattoo Harry. <laughs> well, then uh, you also, uh, after, you know, in the same time, you know, you also see Dr. Stein is, you know, working in regular uh, health care as well. He's got the, the some of the, the more wealthy people come and visit him because we've got this aunt and her, her niece show up, um, not at the same clinic, because the niece has some maladies. And never really say what's wrong with her, other than she's kind of listless and she's got palpitations. Right. <laughs> and I have a feeling that both the niece and the aunt had the hots for Dr. Stein. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, they're, they're, they're trying to get uh, the young do- uh, daughter hooked up with the successful doctor. I mean, yep. that's, that's all that's about. And, I mean, Stein's like whatever. And, and, and I like this scene because uh, the aunt sends her niece to go behind the screen to, you know, get ready for her examination. And I think she came back around the, the the screen with more clothes on than she had before she left. Odd for a Hammer film, or at least for what we would expect for from Hammer down the line. Yes, uh, this, Hammer still hasn't one hundred percent bought into or, or or discovered the uh, draw of more female flesh on screen. I mean, it's still a little uh, prudish in spots. But I do like the fact that um, Dr. Stein gets his little device out to hear her heart. And she makes the comment, But you always used your ear before. I still use my ear. This just magnifies the sound. Oh, Mama, it's so cold. Stand still. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's too cold. Just use your ear. <laughs> you go, Dr. Stein. Uh-huh. <laughs> Well, at the uh, the end of the day, after all of this has happened, uh, the good doctor's finished with the surgery on the uh, pickpocket, um, tattooed Harry, 
his uh, helper there makes his meal up for him. Before we go any farther, do we do we want to talk about uh, Michael Ripper's little role in the film? We didn't. Oh, we can skipped we over please? that. <laughs> can we? I mean, uh, is, he is your hero and everything. Michael Ripper's the man. Okay, I mean, Peter Cushing is one of my favorite actors, but Michael Ripper as a character actor, as a performer uh, in these smaller roles in these films, man, he's just awesome. Well, there's a scene, and we're gonna go back a little bit right after the um, the guillotine shot. Uh, we see um, Michael Ripper's character and Lionel Jeffries, who um, probably is best known for playing the grandfather on Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. This is living. This is style. This is elegance by the mile. Oh, the posh, posh, traveling life, the traveling life for me. First cabin in Which Disney Indiana just covered a couple weeks ago on their last episode, by the way. Because, it's, check a, that because out. it's a Disney film. That's right. <laughs> But uh, the two of them are in a in a bar, and they're basically grave robbers. They they're going to get what a hundred shilling, or I forget exactly how much they were going to get for the body. And Fritz or Lionel Jeffries, being played by Lionel Jeffries, he's obviously the brains. Uh, Kurt or Michael Ripper's character, he's he's just drinking. And he doesn't want anything to do with it. He's been burned by Fritz's plans before. He doesn't want anything to do with it. So Fritz offers him double what he was going to normally get. Don't let the break in anywhere. It's all in the open. Nothing can go wrong. What she said the time before. I've got six months. I've had enough of it. All right, then. Say no more about it. Forget I ever mentioned it. If you don't trust me, that's all right with me. I just have to do it on my own, that's all. All right. I'm going home. Of course, uh, the doctor did say that I mustn't do anything that might strain my heart. I'll see you tomorrow. And uh, I shall have the old ten marks to myself. Ten? You said six. Oh, ten, I mean. Don't worry, you know what does it cause you ain't coming with me. Ten, ten marks. He's on board, and the next scene you see them in the grave, and they're digging up. Well, they're not both digging up the grave. You've got uh, Fritz leaning back on a tombstone eating sandwich. Uh, he obviously is the brains, but he also has convinced Kurt to do all the manual labor. So... He's digging in there, and he uncovers the coffin, and engraved on the co- coffin is um, Baron Frankenstein. And this is, uh, you know, our first, as the viewer, note that uh, once they open it up, we know that the, the good doctor is still alive because found in the coffin is a headless priest. You know, when this movie was announced, Hammer was asked a couple of times, how are they going to bring back Dr. Frankenstein? You know, he was beheaded at the the end of the first film and hammer's response was well we'll just sew his head back on and i do like that the revenge of, the revenge of frankenstein does try to we know peter cushing's going to turn up i mean he's in the trailer and in the trailer he talks about how he survived the guillotine so we know it's his film but i do like this film does try to kind of hide that and, and does save a big reveal 
you know, for a little while. I mean, it doesn't happen right away. You know, am I making sense here? It's it's nice that there's a little bit of mystery. And in what is kind of rare for Hammer, they are holding back. We're not seeing the headless corpse in the coffin. We didn't see the head come off at the guillotine. You know, that sort of thing. So it's it's kind of a nice mystery kind of build up here. Yeah. Now, granted, as soon as, you know, we are told that there's a headless priest in the coffin, Frankenstein shows up because apparently he just hangs out in the graveyard watching his grave. <laughs> Good evening. I am Baron Frankenstein. Well, one thing I liked about the whole setup is it works into building the story for the second film. Yes. Yeah. And I thought it w- that was really well done. But a- as you're right, uh, the good doctor is obviously um, <laughs> hanging out in the graveyard because as soon as the, the reveal is done, you know, the headless priest, we've got um, Kurt, Michael Ripper's character, he runs off. But Lionel Jeffrey or Fritz, who earlier had said he's got a weak heart, uh, has a heart attack and falls back into the open grave. Right. <laughs> and I, I don't remember off the top of my head who Peter Cushing was with, who Dr. Frankenstein was with, because there was somebody else with him. Because he jumps down in the grave and looks at uh, Fritz and then does this great take back to the camera. And I, I don't remember who he's looking back at, but it's just like this, oh, well, another one. I think he was with his uh, his assistant, Carl, wasn't he? The, yeah, but the, you don't the get a good look orphan. at him. Yeah, you, well, yeah, that's true. Yeah. You don't get a good look because that, that's part of the reveal later. If I can sidetrack real quick, you were talking about Lionel Jeffries being in uh, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, that sort of thing. He's in another Hammer film that I think is incredibly underrated that I'd love to get to at some point here on the show called The Crimson Blade. It stars him, uh, Oliver Reed's in that. It, it, it feels like a Robin Hood film to me a little bit, uh, except it's based a little bit more on real history. It's really good. Uh, it was released as a Region 2 DVD last year. I snatched it up. I highly recommend people check it out. Uh, but yeah, Lionel Jeffries is in that as well, and he's fantastic in it. So We've got the events that we talked about later. We, we, we fast forward three years, and we go back to the night after the, the first scenes we see with the good doctor he's finished up the operation with the the pickpocket and he's having a little dinner and uh, hiding in his office as he's beginning to eat is uh dr cleave and dr cleave recognizes dr stein it turns out that uh, dr cleave had attended the funeral of the the doctor that dr frankenstein kills in the first movie which i'm blanking on his name the guy that he pushes over the the railing. The the brilliant, the genius. Yes. The one who was, yeah. Well, Dr. Cleave had attended his funeral. He knew that the body was buried in the Frankenstein family plots. And he kind of recognizes uh, Dr. Stein. And at first, yes, I am a Frankenstein, but there's, you know, Frankenstein's in every city. I even hear there's a Frankenstein in America. And, of course, I said, no, it's Frankenstein in America. <laughs> you know, uh, so, some sources say that that line of dialogue was kind of slipped in there to kind of make a dig at the fact that after Curse of Frankenstein was so successful that some American studios started doing Frankenstein films again, like Teenage Frankenstein and things like that. I have not checked the timeline to see 
where like Teenage Frankenstein and, and some of these, you know, Frankenstein 1970 or whatever. I, I haven't checked the timeline to see where these Frankenstein films line up in terms of, you know, before or after Curse, before Revenge. But I thought it was an interesting, if it is true, it's an interesting little dig that, well, there's one, in, there's some in America now because we brought it back. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> I like that. I could see that. But he's he, he's telling Cleve, yeah, there's a lot of Frankenstein's. We you know we all look alike, but uh, Cleve's not convinced. He he's pretty sure, and he finally gets um, the good doctor to admit it after Cleve basically says he wants to learn. Uh, he's not going to turn him in. He he wants to learn from um, uh, Doctor Stein or Doctor Frankenstein and learn his techniques and and become the greatest doctor and learning from the best doctor. So. Dr. Frankenstein basically takes on Dr. Cleave as an assistant and trainee type of um, of role. So we've got the two of them working together now. And Dr. Frankenstein says, well, why don't we um, go see the lab right now? Let's not waste any time. So we go down to an old, was it an old wine cellar? Yeah. That uh, he's turned into his operation room lab type of area. And it's a hell once, of a wine cellar. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's a hell of a lab. Yes. Yeah. And that's where we meet Carl and Otto. Yeah. I mean, we've seen Carl like at the very beginning because of the hunchback is his heir at the, at the guillotine. But yeah, we actually get to meet Carl version one. Yes. Played by Oscar <laughs> Quitak. We meet pre-op Carl. <laughs> yeah. Okay. There you go. There you go. And Otto played by a monkey. A monkey. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, this monkey is just going crazy, and and Carl's there feeding him. But you don't you don't quite see. It's not that important what's going on. He's just kind of feeding him. But right, Doctor Stein takes Doctor Cleve in, introduces him to Carl, saying he's his assistant, and then he takes him over to this contraption that he's got set up to mimic the human brain. <laughs> and what did you guys think of this device? <laughs> this this cracks me up because. I don't know that they consciously made it a, made an effort to you know fit in with the, some of the sci-fi monster movies that were going on at the time and whatnot, but it f- makes it fit in perfectly with those because it was so over the top and so funny, especially you know when you see the the eyeballs start moving on their own in the water. It's pretty hilarious. Yeah, we've got what there's three boxes and they're full with water, three glass bo- cases, and one of them has uh, a hand in it. One of them has a pair of eyes in it, and the other one they never really show you, but it's where some of the electronics for the brain is. And Dr. Frankenstein's talking about all the things that the brain can control, and he kickstarts all of his equipment up, and he's got a lot of the same equipment from the first film, um, which I thought was was a nice touch. He's got that big spinning uh, wheel that he's got running, and a lot of the equipment looked the same. And once everything is up and running, he lights up a Bunsen burner, and uh, the eyes turn to look at the fire. And it's just watching the fire. When he moves it around, the eyes kind of follow it around in the tank. And then when he moves the fire over towards the hand, the hand is moving backwards away from it. Fire back! Fire back! <laughs> and the whole time, you know, he's, he's telling Dr. Cleave that you know, your brain is, t- is telling you to do this, and I've created this brain, but this is the only thing that I've been able to get it to do. The brain can control, you know, hundreds of millions of different things, but I'm able to so far get it to shy away from fire. So that's when he's saying, you know, he's still got to have, you know, a fresh brain for his experiments. You know, he's he's trying to build electronic one, but he's far away from a positronic brain. 
So <laughs> you asked us what we thought of it, Scott. What did you think of that scene? I liked the fact that a lot of the original lab equipment from the first film shows up. I thought the eyes were really goofy. I mean, the lab itself is awesome, but that yes. particular scene with the eyes and the hand and all that, I've always – I love this movie. Okay, don't get me wrong. I love this movie. But I've always struggled with this scene because there's nothing to make the eyes move. I don't you – yeah. the, the eyes are just kind of floating there. And unless there's – I mean, I suppose maybe the eyes and the – brain are all connected to the wires or whatever but there's just nothing there to make things move so i've always struggled a little bit with that it's a nitpick but i've always struggled with that i mean that's my first thought too even just looking at it you know how are they moving you see there's a lot of uh i guess you call it stuff hanging off the back of the eyes it's the optical <laughs> nerves and stuff like that is that so, is know, that the medical term that yes yeah, stuff, stuff. Okay. <laughs> but they you know so you make did they kind of leave they just leave it so open so you're wondering you know are they saying that the optical nerves are making the eyeballs swim around in this water or what but it, it does stand out it's something that yeah kind of you know reaches up and smacks you a bit especially when peter cushing is running around the room turning on all these weird devices that you don't know what they do and stuff like that, but selling it and making it believable that he really needs all these crazy devices that are running in the background. So you see where that's coming from believable to all of a sudden eyeballs swimming around in a solution of their own accord. Then, you know, it's kind of like, well, what's this? Yeah. I mean, the lab itself, I think is fantastic. I love this lab. Um, David Pyrie in the new heritage Horror calls this, uh, lab, the peak of abstract color perfection. And I, I, I would agree. I mean, it, it looks good. It's got the great equipment. Some of it held over from the previous film, but it's also lit with these wonderful, like reds and blues and spots. And it just, it's this crazy wonky science setup. And I love it. Oh, I would love to just be there and explore it because it just looks yeah. so cool. It gets showcased later on in the film, too, really well. And oh, even yeah. more so with the colors and whatnot. But, yeah, I, I agree with you guys that, I mean, I can see what the filmmakers were trying to do. They were trying to show that Frankenstein is trying to not have to use a brain, but he's still way off from that. Because that's, that's what he's trying to invent there is basically a, an electronic brain. Right, one that he doesn't have to steal from another source. But then after this is all over, he takes uh, Dr. Cleave over to some curtains hanging down to show him what his next experiment will be where I'll have my revenge. Do you know that I, that Frankenstein was condemned to death? Yes. Do you know what for? Well, surely everyone knows. The story's become a legend. He created a man who became a monster. It should have been perfect. I made it to be perfect. If the brain hadn't been damaged, my work would have been hailed as the greatest scientific achievement of all time. Frankenstein would have been accepted as a genius of science. Instead, he was sent to the guillotine. I swore I would have my revenge. The title okay. there. Okay. <laughs> okay, Dr. Stein. Okay. <laughs> so he whips open the curtains and you see a full body... Uh, suspended in the, the fluid, just like in the first movie where you had the uh, basically a glass coffin with the, the water in there. You had, had the body, and uh, Dr. Cleave says, Who is that? Nobody. He isn't born yet. And he's basically cobbled another body together, but this time we don't have the, the scary patchwork of, of a monster that we had in the first movie. This one, he looks great. I mean, it looks... Like, he's not injured or anything, except for having yeah. his head wrapped up. Obviously, he must have a hole there, you know, ready to put the brain in. 
one thing I wanted to ask you guys at this point, and and maybe maybe this isn't the right point in the show to talk about it, but when you know he says I'm going to have my revenge, who did you guys think he's going to have his revenge against? It's a good question. Because my mind immediately went to the people that he should have wanted revenge against, and that's Paul Kremke and Elizabeth. Yeah. Well, you know, as we talked about when we covered Curse of Frankenstein, um, Urquhart was not going to come back for another Hammer film. He was not too pleased with the, with the uh, level of violence and, well, at that time, gore in the film. So he wasn't going to come back. So it's not like they can get that character back or whatever, or, or at least the same actor to play that character. I think this scene that we're talking about, there's some dialogue that happens like right around the spot as well that I think is a little bit more telling that you can get a little, maybe you can extrapolate the revenge from because at one point he says, oh, the world will never be rid of me. And I love that line of dialogue. You know, they'll never be rid of me. So to me, it's less about taking specific revenge on like one or two people and more about revenge on the medical establishment, the world itself for condemning me for, you know, daring to look into the secrets of life and death and blah, blah, blah. But it's, it's pretty grand and, and open. I, I don't know. It's not overly specific. On top of that, the movie itself began life not as the revenge of Frankenstein, but the blood of Frankenstein. So – Maybe that's why this film doesn't have a lot of strong revenge motifs because it didn't begin as something called Revenge of Frankenstein. And that may have been shoehorned in to kind of fit. Okay. I mean, we kind of joked a little bit that, well, there's the title. You know, maybe it was kind of shoehorned in to say that. Because, you know, I, I really thought that he would be wanting to go against, you know, Krimpke and Elizabeth because they basically sold him out at the end of the film to the right. police. You know, so of course we, we don't have that, but we do have uh, this this body that uh, he now needs a brain for. That, yeah, Doctor Cleve's like, where are you going to get a brain from? And I, I love this scene where oh, he, yeah. he says, you know, I have a volunteer. He's here in the laboratory. And this look on Doctor Cleve's face, like, holy crap! What have I got myself into? And he's like, yeah. No, it's not you. <laughs> Now, your brain is too valuable where it is. <laughs> now, didn't we have a scene kind of similar to this in Curse, where at one point uh, the Robert Urquhart character gets this look on his face like uh, he's going to take my body parts for something? Except in this one, in this film, it's much more effective. Yes. <laughs> I think Cleve really sold it, or Francis Matthews really sold it. That was really good. Dr. Stein says, no, we've got Carl. He's already volunteered for this. Now, we go back and, and we talk to Carl. Carl, turns out he's got basically not much control over the right side of his body. You know, Dr. Cleve says, you know, aren't you worried that it's a deformed brain? He's, you know, he's got the, the problems. And he says, Dr. Stein says, no, it's a blood clot. I'll be able to clear that up during the, um, the transplant. No, no worries. He'll be just fine. And, uh, in fact, we find out that Carl had made the agreement with um, Dr. Frankenstein at the end of the first movie to help him escape and return for Dr. Frankenstein making him into a normal person. And that's that's the big reveal of, you know, how the the ending of the first movie, how he was able to escape because he had help. Right. There's something else that happens here in the lab scene that I wanted to mention real quick because I when I first saw this movie, I was like, that's that's interesting. I wonder what they're going to do with that. Carl has the tattooed man's arm. And it's revealed that not only is Dr. Stein, you know, amputating, amputating body parts or whatever up in the, the cheap surgery area, he's bringing the pieces back here. 
and and why? What's he going to do with them? And you know, he talks about how you have to have really nimble fingers to be a pickpocket. So, I mean, we're kind of laying the groundwork for something that's going to be revealed towards the end of the movie. And I don't know if we want to say what that is because it kind of spoils things. Although this movie is what <laughs> fifty plus years old. Yeah. Uh, I, I just I liked that as well. I thought it was very smart filmmaking. One. And two, of course, he's taking body parts from people who, you know, have nimble fingers and things like that. So, well, they do a lot of good subtle bits in the filmmaking with things such as that, because like this, for instance, sets you up questioning. You know, did the doctor tell that guy that he needed to lose his arm because he really needed to lose his arm, or did he tell him he needed to lose his arm because he wanted his arm? So, you know, you, that sets up kind of that really accentuates the doctor's disregard for humanity all at the same time while he's trying to recreate humanity on yeah. his own. So you get the you get kind of the dark disregard of humanity from the doctor from there. But then they do a lot of little tricks like that throughout the movie too, and we'll get into it later when we talk about like the transplants and stuff like that. The way they mark the passage of time and whatnot I thought was really clever too. Just there's a lot of little clever bits in the filmmaking in here. Mm-hmm. Carl does uh, bring the, the the arm out, and uh, you know, of course, Doctor Frankenstein's thrilled to be able to get this arm. And it turns out that uh, he's also ready for Carl's surgery, so they're not they're not going to waste uh, much time getting this done. I don't think we spend a lot of time. I mean, between introducing the lab and going to surgery, I mean, it, it seemed to happen pretty quick. Yeah. Yeah, so he's going to take the brain out of Carl and put it into this uh, body that he that uh, Frankenstein's built. They had used a sheep's brain for that scene. They actually show a brain uh, being dumped from a pan into a glass of water. I mean, not a glass of water, but a, you know, a big jar of water. And when I looked at that, it it not only looked too small for a human brain; it only looked about half the size of a human brain. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was a sheep's brain, and uh, similar to what would happen years later on a zombie movie, Day of the Dead, at one point that brain got left out over a weekend and uh, started to rot and get filled with maggots and things like that, so they actually had to go out and get another brain before they could continue shooting more with that brain. <laughs> I, I Francis Matthews, who said when they came back to shoot after the brain had been left out, that the brain itself was alive with maggots. Wow, that's 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 not the kind of horror movie we're making here. <laughs> no. So he um, installs the brain in the body that he's built, and uh, not only does he do that, but he also preserves Carl's original body. So you know that he's going to do something with that, or he's got plans for it. But uh, he then takes the new body back up to the the poor hospital, but back to a back room that he's got all prepared and with straps and. Um, areas to be locked up to to keep him so he can he can check on him all the time. About this time, we have um, uh, Margaret uh, Conrad uh, showing up, who wants to to work in the poor hospital. I'm Margaret Conrad. I should be working here. Oh, the doctor didn't tell me about that. Well, my father is the minister. Doctor Stein has been informed. I see. I shall read to the sick. Shop for them, you know. And it's never quite explained to, to me why she wants to work there. I I never quite understood yeah. that. She just shows up and says, "I belong here," and they say, "Okay." Yeah. And her dad, <laughs> her dad is somebody powerful in the town, and so no one really questions it. 
could we be reaching here by saying that maybe she had designs of getting herself married off to the popular doctor as well, so she decided she's going to start helping off at the hospital? Well, it turns out that she is another niece of the aunt that we saw earlier in the film, so that could be. But I can't imagine that as soon as she turned up on screen, Scott, that that's what you were wondering about. You know, why is Margaret Conrad here? I'm sure you had other thoughts, right? Oh, I immediately thought, there's Sylvia Trench. Well, I've just been reviewing an old case. Oh, so I'm an old case now, am I? Shh, it's the office. Uh, tell him I'm on my way, will you? He is not on his way. Sylvia, behave. We'll do this again some other time soon. Do what? Last time you said that, you went off to Jamaica. I haven't seen you for six months. <laughs> and Sylvia Trench was uh, a character that uh, she played in the first two James Bond films, uh, Dr. No and From Russia With Love. And uh, one of the things that's uh, unique about her character is uh, in the first film, Dr. No, not only is she the first Bond girl that he hooks up with, uh, she's also the recipient of the famous line of Bond, James Bond. She's the first uh, woman to get that line. So the actress's name is Eunice Gason. This is the only Hammer film that she had done. And outside of doing this and the, uh, the two James Bond movies, she kind of had a rough period in her life. Uh, did you know about that or hear about that with the shoplifting incident? I have I've read about that. She was also originally cast as being Mrs., uh, Miss Moneypenny. Right. But she, she lost that role as well. Yeah. In 74, she was arrested for shoplifting 13 bottles of shoe coloring uh, from a Woolworths. Uh, she told police at the time it was a cry for help because in the past three years of her life at that point, She'd only had four weeks' worth of acting work. So I'm thinking she didn't really have a huge career there in the 70s or so. So she has since gone on to kind of pick herself up and, and get back into, you know, a non shoe polish stealing lifestyle. But uh, yeah, I thought that was interesting that, you know, she's in this Hammer film, she's in these Bond movies, I mean, which are big, iconic movies. I mean, it's James Bond for crying out loud yet, you know? So you're saying that she was uh, that generation's Winona Ryder? Sure. That's exactly <laughs> that going what too I'm far saying. for that. Yes. No. I don't know. But but I will say I did <laughs> I did like looking at her in only uh, a men's dress shirt in Doctor No a lot more than the outfit <laughs> she was wearing in this film. There is that. <laughs> I'm glad you went on to specify because I figured uh, you you were just going to go with. I did enjoy looking at her. <laughs> well, just, that's true you know. too. <laughs> she is a very pretty girl, a pretty, very pretty lady. Um, she's kind of wasted in this movie, though. Yes. Uh, you know, she's called in a couple of different places, A History of Horrors, uh, you know, Hammer Memories, a few other books here and there. She's called the most token of all of Hammer's heroines because she really has very little to do. There's no sex appeal or anything here. And, uh, I mean, she's a plot device. Well, there is the one scene early in the film before Carl has the transplant where the two of the two characters kind of see each other and you can tell there's a spark on Carl's side. He's he's got the hots yeah. for her, which Well yeah. Which will come back later in the film. I mean, she she is a plot device. She is there to help release the creature and to stir the creature's feelings. Yeah, that's about it. I mean she's a walking talking prop who looks good, but she's a walking talking prop. Yeah. Which is unfortunate. But, you know, again, at this point in Hammer's trajectory, they haven't done a bunch of the Draculas, so it's not like they've got the sex part of it down yet. They've got the gore and they've got the, the gothicness. They don't have the cleavage down yet. Boy. <laughs> <laughs> and boy, when they get that cleavage down, they really take off. 
Wow. With that in mind, would it be you know poor form to point out that every time they mentioned that other doctor's name, Cleve, I giggled like a idiot. <laughs> wow. You know, maybe I've been watching too many horror films because I thought it was kind of strange that a doctor was named after a cleaver. I didn't think of cleavage. <laughs> now I always will. Thanks, Casey. Uh, You're welcome. Yes, and I'm glad you took the uh, the image of Dr. Giggles out of my mind. So. <laughs> uh, wearing nothing but a men's dress shirt. <laughs> uh. Anyway, back to the film. So we've got. Hey, uh, you want to talk about Police Academy some more? Should we? <laughs> <laughs> well, we get uh, we get Carl taken back to the hospital, and we got Margaret working there in the um, in the ward. She's basically a um, a mercy nurse. She's bringing around tobacco and writing instruments and that kind of stuff to the patient. She's not a real nurse, you know, not having any kind of medical training. So she's just kind of there trying to lift their spirits. She's and a candy striper. Pretty much. And she's told that there's a new patient in town uh, that's that's hidden. Not, But she's not told by Dr. Cleave or, or Dr. Stein. There's uh, this, this guy that kind of works in there uh, sweeping up and stuff, and he had happened to overhear them bring the new patient in. I'm not sure why, but he decides to tell Margaret that there's this patient down there and he knows where they keep the key to lock the room up and she should go in there and check on him. And I'm not sure why yeah. he does that. I don't I don't what his, I don't understand what his motivation is for, for getting in to see what that patient is. Other than to just cause troubles is what it makes it look like. Yeah, that's the vibe that I got too. He just likes to stir things up. Yeah, but I mean, they were. I would imagine that you know he should be thankful that he's got a, a job that he's being employed in that time and place, and they seem to take care of him he gets really free good. Tobacco. He gets free tobacco, and you know, Doctor Cleve makes him um, tea drinks when he needs it, and we'll sit there and listen <laughs> to his stories about why he doesn't bathe. Now then, take the animals in the jungle. They don't wash none, and yet they keep healthy. You never hear of them getting sick, because why? Because they are good and dirty. And what do you know about the animals in the jungle? Ah, you'd be surprised. I'm a great animal fancier. I know all about their habits. Because you practice them yourself, eh? And what's wrong with that? They was here before we was, and they'll be here a long time after we've gone. They know how to look after themselves. Wow. So um, we got this guy, and he lets Margaret in, and as soon as the door opens up, she recognizes, or she doesn't recognize, but Carl recognizes her. I mean, he's now in a different body. But he recognizes her. Uh, she, he's still strapped to the bed, um, but he's wanting to escape. And I did, I did miss kind of a, an important thing right before then, um, because he asked, you know, for Dr. Cleveley's, he asked Dr. Cleve, what's the, what, what are the plans for him? What, what are they going to do? And he's like, oh, you're going to be traveling all over the world. You're going to be, you know, doctors are going to come from all over the world to see you. You're going to be asked, interviewed by all these prominent people. And, you know, you're just going to be this most popular celebrity. Well, he's experienced all his life of people staring at him and looking at him because of his, uh, maladies that he, he doesn't want that. He's that just really scares him. And so he, 
you can see that he finds that there's a window in the room, you know, while Dr. Cleve's still there. So he starts planning his escape, trying to figure out how to get away from this because he doesn't want a world like that. And uh, so then we've got, of course, you know, Margaret then now in there with him and he convinces her that, you know, the straps are too tight and he's, he's in pain. These straps, they hurt. too tight. I'll loosen them for you. So she loosens the straps for him. She also, you know, gives him her address so she can, or he can go if she needs any help, if he needs any help in the future because he doesn't have a job. And if she needs, he needs a job once he gets healed up, you know, come see her. So unwittingly, she helps him escape because she's loosened up the straps and he is able to, to get out of the bed and to crawl out of the window. And at this point, while this is happening, we've got Dr. Stein and we've got uh, Dr. Cleve back in the laboratory and they're looking at uh, Otto. And Otto is kind of uh, agitated. But uh, at the same time, Dr. Stein is showing Dr. Cleve what he's done with Carl's old body. And they pull the blanket back, and you see that Carl's old body's got scars all over his face. He's He's been doing something to it. But it uh, doesn't really go into to what's going on there. But uh, Otto's going nuts. And, that, I'm sorry? I never made the connection that that was Carl's body. I don't know who else's it would have been. I just, uh, in my mind, I had assumed that when they showed him earlier gathering parts from other patients and stuff like that, that it was just something that he had pieced together. Well, it, it it did turn out to be in the same place that Carl attacks later. Yes. I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm just saying I never made that connection. Ah. So, but that your your ideas make sense that it was Carl's body now. It makes more sense than mine that he was piecing it together. Okay. That was more of an aha <laughs> exclamation for me. <laughs> but at the same time, Otto is, is going crazy. Now, this is one thing that I didn't know. Are chimpanzees vegetarian? They eat bananas. I know that. A lot. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> because, you know, earlier we said that Dr. Cleve was uh, um, giving the that guy that works in the hospital, you know, the, the tea and everything. And he's telling him his whole story of why he doesn't bathe. And that he just wants, at one point he says he just wants to be, you know, a monkey. And just so he's able to, to hang out in the jungle and never have to wash and, and eat bananas. And he's <laughs> like, that's all they, you know, they just eat bananas. Well, back in the dungeon, or not the dungeon, back in the laboratory, Otto's hungry. <laughs> There's a slip. <laughs> and Dr. Stein feeds him meat, which Carl is really kind of like, you know, you know, what's what's going? Why is he getting getting meat? And he said, well, and this is this is one thing that I, I found funny. Yeah, you know, Right after the surgery, he had, you know, an, an injury where it damaged one of his brain cells. And then he ate his girlfriend. <laughs> oh, wow. And I'm like, first yeah. off, you know, that's pretty bad to, to do that. But then how did he know that only one brain cell was damaged? And how in the world do you damage just one brain cell? Because he's Dr. Frankenstein. <laughs> of course he knows these things. Uh, according to uh, the Internet, <laughs> chimpanzees <laughs> are typically vegetarian. They will eat, let's see. 
I'll just read to you exactly what I see here. When they eat meat, they will usually eat termites or other monkeys. And the meat in their diet accounts for only about 2%. So I guess they do eat other monkeys occasionally, which <laughs> is odd. But then we've got Cleve is like seeing Otto eat meat and got the explanation that there was some trauma to the brain after the surgery before it was fully healed. And because he's, you know, he had a brain transplant as well. I don't know if, if I mentioned that or not. Right. Because he used to be a baboon. Yes. And or now a he has. Or whatever. Yeah. Yes. And so now he ate his girlfriend and he'll basically only eat meat. So that's what he, uh, he feeds him. I love this scene because Frankenstein is explaining that he ate his mate. Did Otto eat flesh before you operated? No, I discovered it soon after the operation. He ate his wife. As another monkey. What else would he be married to? Yeah, perfect. Uh, just, mm, well, what, what I liked about this scene is Frankenstein is saying everything so matter-of-factly. Cleve is get this look on his face. Is this what's going to happen to Carl? You know, he's get this this great look on his face while, you know, Dr. Stein's just saying all these facts. And he's like, well, that's why we've got to be careful with him, you know, so he doesn't have any kind of brain injury and he doesn't doesn't turn to cannibalism, basically. Interesting twist on the Frankenstein story here because we don't see cannibalism in – well, I can't think of any other Frankenstein films where we see that. Okay, Derek, this is the question that you know everybody's dying to know, especially you know with the whole mail order zombie connection and stuff. Would oh, this make, God. Here we go. Would this make Frankenstein a zombie? No. Would this, <laughs> would this make Carl a zombie? No. It's a it's a it's a living puzzle with a battery shoved in it. It's not it's not a zombie. It's it's a bunch of pieces put together and, and turned into something new. A zombie has to be whole. no, even though it eats flesh. Stop. Even though it was was a dead human. <laughs> I guess uh, that'll be a question to future zombie scholars. No, it's not a question. The answer <laughs> is no. The question is done. Over. No. <laughs> Uh-huh. <laughs> Your lack of faith is disturbing. Whatever. <laughs> so how much farther shall we go into the plot? We've got Carl now on the loose, potential with him turning to cannibalism. We've got uh, Frankenstein and Cleve chasing after him to try to find him. How much farther do we want to go? Well, we we got to talk about what Carl version two does to the body of Carl version one. I think that was a really uh, kind of an t- intense and emotional scene. So we've got uh, we got post op Carl um, going. <laughs> 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 we got post op Carl makes his way back to the laboratory and. Okay, you know what? If we ever get our Quatermass Experience band off the ground, I want a song called Post op Carl. There's got to be or an album or something. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Well, he, he makes his way back to the laboratory after he escapes, and uh, it's at night, so the two doctors aren't there. He breaks into the lab. He finds um, pre-op Carl on the table, the body of him, and um, immediately freaks out, grabs him, and throws him in a furnace, destroys the body, burns it up. We also see hints here, too, as he's starting to do this, that... This, they start showing small, subtle little hints that him getting up and doing all this stuff is starting to cause problems with well, his he recovery. Had just, he had also just had the fight with the janitor. Right. And the janitor hit him in the head a couple times, punched him. And 
you've got the do we have the brain damage coming in that was mentioned with the uh, with Otto? Is he going to, you know, my initial thought when he saw the body there was he going to eat him? But he ended up. I guess he wanted to cook him first. I don't know. <laughs> right. No, I I really liked again. And is this what you were talking about, Casey, earlier? That this is where we get to really highlight the lab. Is it the fight scene? Well, no. Part of that too, though, is when. Well, yes, you do get to see the highlight of, of the lab. For me, the the perfect highlight of the lab is when you see them at the end of Carl's surgery, when you see them break it out and they've got this big shiny blue light that's pulsing above his uh, head and they're running around hitting everything in the lab and whatnot. And here, here I could have, didn't they, didn't we see Carl go to the furnace before the guy found him before, right before the fight. And then the fight ensues after the furnace part. Am I correct in thinking that or have I got that out of order? We see the furnace a couple of times, don't we? Yeah, we do. But I'm trying to remember if post-op Carl discovered pre-op Carl before the fight. I thought they did because in my mind, anyways, the way I'm remembering it, we see Carl, as soon as Carl got out of bed, he went straight to the body because he knew that they were going to do to it. He was going towards the fur- He was going to take it to the furnace. We see him go to the furnace and open it, but then we start seeing post-op Carl clutching his stomach like there's things going wrong ahead of time. To which then the janitor finds him, and that's when the fight ensues. And right. then he starts getting hit yeah, in the I, head. I, yeah. So you see hints of things happen to, starting to break down beforehand. You may be right. I, I may be mis- misremembering that. I really struggled with the fight scene because they were breaking up the lab. Yeah. I mean, it's such a gorgeous lab. What are you guys doing? <laughs> you can't do that. You can't fight in here. <laughs> oh, man. Well, I, I found that entire sequence i mean burning the old body and and the fight scene and all that i just i really love those two moments in here um because he's getting pushed around and beat up a little bit yeah the the brain damage is going to kick in we pretty much know what's going to happen because we saw what happened to Otto. and uh the monster does i mean i think it's fair to start calling him the monster at this point because he does go out into public he does kill somebody Mm -hmm. who Okay, wow. you know, for all that I said earlier about how <laughs> Hammer hasn't quite figured out, you know, cleavage and all that such, neither has the boy with Gerda. Wow. Because Gerda <laughs> really, really wants some. And the boy with Gerda <laughs> really likes the ants. Oh, stop that, can't you? Well, what are you getting annoyed about? What do you think I'm getting annoyed about? We've been here half an hour, and all you can find to do is look at a lot of ants. Well, ants is interesting. You can learn a lot from ants. Well, you haven't learned much. What do you mean? They've got more sense than to sit around all night. They get on with it. On with what? Oh, I'm going home. Good night, Gerda. Yes. (laughs) You can learn a lot from ants. (laughs) I think there's something wrong with boy with Gerda. Yes, I think so, too. <laughs> and really, he should have been the you know if you're following you know the the traditional horror movie rules of like the eighties or so, the girl should have gotten it because she's the one that wants to be naughty, you know, and I guess that kind of plays out here because she ends up getting killed by well, I mean, I'm kind of spoiling things a little bit, but yeah, you know from the the monster, the creature kills her, yep, as the movie progresses, he is starting to exhibit symptoms or the signs of what pre op Carl had. 
he's having trouble with his right side. He's he's dragging his right foot again, and is he's clutching his his right hand back to his chest, just like he was before. And now he's drooling. Yes. And the drooling I've seen explained is kind of like the cannibalism starting to creep in that he's getting hungry, so he's starting okay. to salivate quite a bit, which. You know, maybe that's what they were doing. Uh, the British Board of Film Censors had an issue with the drooling and some of the leers that he was giving people because they thought it was a little sexual. I don't see that at all, and I don't think Hammer meant it to be sexual at all. It just seems very, well, you know, he wants to eat him, so he's going to drool, you know? He looked like somebody who was really hungry looking at a cheeseburger. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you could see, like, in his mind, the person was transforming into like a, a big cartoon steak or something, you know? <laughs> now this, this is one of the highlights of the movie to me because I really like Michael Gwynn's portrayal of post-op Carl. I thought he was yeah. one of the most outstanding actors in the film. Oh, he's fantastic in this. Mm-hmm. Uh, did he remind you at all? And I, I didn't, I haven't noticed this before the time I watched it for this show. He reminded me a little bit of Doug Jones. The way he kind of moved and the way he would kind of do the physical acting with trying to take on the, the deformities and such. I got a little bit of Doug Jones out of that. I don't know if that was just me or – I could see that, but – and I know I'll be alone on this one. I got Michael Palin from Monty Python. No, you're not. I got <laughs> Michael, Pal- Michael Palin as well. I got the he looked Palin. like him in the face. Yeah, yeah I got bit. the Palin from like the neck up, but I'm talking about like the physical – the physicality of it because he's this tall, lanky, skinny guy. But no, I saw the Michael Palin as well from like the neck up, especially in like some of his facial mm-hmm. yeah. movements and acting. But he was really creepy. He was re- really acting well. I mean, the malady not only was affecting you know his hands and his his feet. It looked like the right side of his face. He was the way he was moving some of the muscles in his face. It looked like it was affecting that as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Story wise, this is really cool too because now we're seeing the fact because especially if you look at in conjunction with Curse and whatnot, it's the sequel of a franchise and whatnot. Now we're seeing that the Doctor's skills have progressed so far that he can make a monster, in air quotes, that is near perfect looking. Yeah. So, you know, we've gone from, you know, the bolts and the big scars and everything. It was Christopher Lee in the first movie to this who could pass as a regular person walking around walking around town if, if he'd taken the time to rest properly. So we're actually we're seeing we're also seeing here too, story wise and franchise wise, we're seeing uh, the doctor on the verge of actually succeeding. Well, on his I'll, entire plan. I, I definitely agree with you there. And I also thought that taking the cannibalism part out of it, the whole the the right side of his body, that was something that was inherent in the brain. I don't think, you know, the blood clot might have been in the brain or, or something else that they didn't know about, but that was, you know, his his um, maladies were being controlled in the brain. So when you take the brain from one body to the other, it's eventually going to start doing that again. Right. Right. So that yeah. just goes even farther to your point of how well he was able to transfer a brain from one to the other, and it starts acting the same way that it was acting in the in the first body. Right, yeah, he's able to, to carry that over. Um, one last thing about Michael Gwynn, he would turn up again in Scars of Dracula for Hammer in 1970. And while he had done a handful of television and films and things like that, he's primarily a stage actor. So we didn't see him in a lot of movies, unfortunately. Uh, he did a lot of TV over in the UK in the 70s and such, but, I mean, he really sells it. Both I mean, versions, I guess, of Carl, you know, before brain deformation and, and after. If it wasn't for Peter Cushing, he would be my favorite person in this film. Oh, wow. Yeah, I can see that. He really sold his role there. I like Francis Matthews a lot. 
who was Dr. Cleave. Yeah, I like Dr. Cleave a lot. I like him as a performer, and I think part of it's because I really liked him in uh, the Dracula film that we covered. What was that, Prince of Darkness? Mm-hmm. I liked him in that. I, I like him. There's something very comfortable about him in a gothic setting. So I really liked him, and I liked his relationship with Cushing. And I liked that he was on board. He wasn't like you know Cushing's or Frankenstein's assistant in the last film. Yeah. Cleve was on board from the beginning. He might have questioned a few things here or there. And yes, Stein did berate him a little bit when he messed up. I mean, ultimately, you know, Margaret is the one that frees Carl, but Carl wouldn't have wanted to get out if Cleve didn't tell him, you know, he's going to put you on display like in a circus. So Stein does berate him a little bit, but he still has him on board. And there's a buddy relationship there that I really liked. Well, one thing that I liked on Dr. Cleave, as, as com- especially compared to Paul Kremke in the first film, is that I don't think Cleave had the morals that Kremke has. So he never had that moral issue of, of what he was doing was wrong. His drive to learn and his drive to be the best doctor overrode those. And so he didn't have a problem with what he was doing. He was... Very similar to Dr. Frankenstein. I mean, I could see they could have easily taken that character, and after what he had learned in the first film, you could have made a whole other movie about him and his um, attempts to, to do the same things that Dr. Frankenstein was doing. Yeah. Yeah, because technically, and you know, without dropping any huge spoilers here or anything, he actually, you know, he, could, he performs the process. He does. My only my only beef with Cleve, and I think I agree with you guys that he was a great part of this, and I I like I do like there's no animosity or anything. He's not aghast at what the doctor's doing or thing. He's fully on board and stuff. I love that. I think they could have set that up a little bit cleaner than when they first introduced him, because you know when he first seeks out the doctor and calls him out on, hey, you're a Frankenstein, and you know your your whole posing as Stein, Doctor Stein as BS, and. The doctor, as far as story and plotting goes, the doctor just accepted that and took him in fairly easily. There wasn't a whole lot of fight there or anything like that. He didn't have to do anything to prove himself to the doctor other than to show up and say, hey, I figured out who you are. If they would have had a little bit more of him proving his skills and whatnot to the doctor, then I think it would have been full bore awesome and it would have really set up being able to do spinoffs with that character and whatnot, whereas before – we just have to kind of take the suspension of disbelief approach that he's as good as the doctor is. He tells the doctor he is. Now, that, again, that's nitpicky too, but I just think it would have that, that would have been the one thing to beef out that character, the, you know, as far as character history and stuff like that, character development. But that's well, not to take away what the character ended up being. Well, he showed up just at the right time in, for Dr. Stein because he needed an assistant. He was, that's he true. Was, he was ready to do the the work on Carl. So he needed an assistant. He needed someone to take over some of the duties that Carl was doing because Carl was no longer going to be available to him. That's true. And, you know, really they do kind of show that as well. And then once he takes Cleve to the lab and introduces him to Carl and Carl questions him, questions the doctor on it. He's like, Oh, I just need an assistant. So, you know, he works out good. He's skilled. Yeah. And then he goes to work also, in uh, Dr. Stein's hospital for the poor. So he's getting some chance to show his work basically to, to Dr. Stein about how well he is as a doctor. 
It does kind of help to highlight the aloofness of Dr. Schnein as well as towards this, all this stuff where he doesn't where you know, he knows he's breaking ground. He doesn't necessarily see it. it what he's doing is something bad. Yeah. And, and that he's, if someone's willing to help him, he's going to take advantage of it. He doesn't, yeah. he doesn't really need to investigate while well, he may turn me in or he may not be as good as he thinks. He, he's also not only aloof, but he's also thinking in the back of his mind, I'm good enough to do this on my own. I just need another pair of hands. That, that's a good point. Well, yeah, and maybe that's it. You know, there's just a supreme self-confidence here that Dr. Stein has in himself that even if Dr. Cleave does try to turn him in, well, he'll find a way out of it. I mean, he survived the guillotine, right? Yeah. So what I did like, there's a scene when Stein berates Cleave for telling Carl what we're going to do with him. Don't you understand human nature? You know, and he just... It, it establishes the superiority of Stein, I guess, over Cleve and everything else where he is totally detached from – Not necess- I'm sorry, where he hasn't necessarily detached from human nature. He understands human nature as just another thing. There's no judgment about it. It just – it is and it doesn't matter. I'm still Dr. Motherfucking Frankenstein and I'm going to make me – I'm going to be you – know, you'll never get rid of me. It's human nature. Whatever. Moving on. I just I liked that moment as well. Again, it's a little subtle thing, and again, it might be one of these things that I'm just kind of looking into it, looking really hard at it because I love Cushing's performance in this. I now but want I, a, I liked that. I now want a doctor's lab coat with embroidered "Doctor Motherfucking Frankenstein." <laughs> <laughs> that would be I, awesome. <laughs> I love the fact that there was a, a small thing that cracked me up that I loved about this movie when they get in the lab and stuff like that, and they get ready to you know do their do surgery and stuff like that. You see Cleve getting his, you know, his little white doctor's lab coat and stuff like that that you expect. But Dr. Frankenstein changes into another top coat. Yes. Oh, yeah, because he's, he's pimping. He's got his operate. He's got his, his his walking around top coat and his operating top coat. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm thinking when that scene came on the first time, I'm thinking to myself, you know, I've seen a lot of movies where there's realistic style operations, like the original MASH movie, and there's blood everywhere. <laughs> And yeah. of course, there's none on him when he's done. That's how good he is. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Doctor Motherfucking Frankenstein. <laughs> <laughs> I love this movie, man. I, I love almost everything about it. There are a few things here and there, like the 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 brain in three boxes setup is just really odd to me uh but i love like the lab design i love the camera work i think the the direction in this is better than curse i I still love curse don't get me wrong but terrence fisher and company are now comfortable yeah they've made curse of frankenstein they've made the dracula film i mean a lot of this was shot on the dracula sets i mean they've made these two movies now We're, we're kind of used to it we've got uh you know, people in this movie that we've worked with before. Uh, you know, the guy who played the victim in the first Quatermass film is in this. So, I mean, it's still kind of a family affair with some of the regular Hammer folks. So, I mean, everybody's comfortable enough. We can really kind of explore the subject matter on a, in a way that they couldn't with Curse of Frankenstein because it was, Curse was the first time that they had tried to do something like this. They weren't held back by what the public had already accepted as a Frankenstein story because of what Universal had done. I mean, this, these guys were able to do anything that they wanted to. And I think this movie really highlights almost everybody's skill set in the best possible way. Um, not everybody liked the movie. 
you know, the British Board of Film Censors had a lot of issues with a lot of the problem or a lot of things in this movie. Uh, some reviews, let's see, Howard Maxford calls Terrence Fisher's direction too stately, Jack Asher's pho- photography too unadventurous in its movement, and the monster less than horrific. Meanwhile, the plot has more holes than a Swiss cheese, but I think he's wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Gary J. Svella from Midnight Marquis says, at last, with the revenge of Frankenstein, the character of Baron Frankenstein was coming into his own. This film is superior to Curse in every way, thanks to Jimmy Sangster being free from following Universal's formula. Jimmy Sangster was the screenwriter on the film. I I mentioned earlier there was somebody who was different uh, in terms of people who worked on this movie that did not come back from Curse, and that would be James Bernard. The music in this film was scored by Leonard Salcedo, who had done a handful of other Hammer films before they went gothic, like The Unholy Four and things like that, The Steel Bayonet, which I guess Steel Bayonet came out after Frankenstein, first Frankenstein, but still, Salcedo had done some Hammer work, so he's still part of the family, quote-unquote, but this is his first real big horror piece. I noticed the difference in the music. I thought the music in this one isn't as memorable in Curse, there was a lot of, um, of of the music that I really enjoyed, and it made an impression on me. The music in Revenge didn't. It just kind of was there. And that's, I, I think that um, in music-wise, Revenge is inferior to Curse. It's different. I, I still like James Bernard's better. I, I don't find it like an inferior score in Revenge of Frankenstein. I mean, I don't actively dislike it. But it is markedly different and it's not the same and bernard would do more of the gothic films for hammer so you know salcedo kind of came in did revenge of frankenstein and then didn't do a lot didn't do any film work after that i mean some of his music turned up on uh, the hammer house of horror tv series in the 80s but for the most part he would go on to do a bunch of ballet and things like that after that and i just kind of get the impression that he wasn't a film composer by, I don't know, by choice, by design. I mean, he did some film work, but looking at his career, it's obvious his interests were really on the, for, for the stage. I don't know, maybe that's why the film score on Revenge of Frankenstein doesn't compare to Bernard's. I don't know. Now, Hammer had a lot of faith in their Frankenstein franchise uh, from the beginning. In fact, two months before Curse of Frankenstein was released, they started talking about doing a sequel. So they were ready to move forward with this Frankenstein, or at least do a sequel and, and see how that goes. Uh, like we said earlier, it was originally called The Blood of Frankenstein when it was in development, got turned into Revenge of Frankenstein before it was released. It was part of that deal that they had set up with Columbia Pictures. And I don't remember if I mentioned the other two movies that were part of that deal uh, to begin with, but The Camp on Blood Island and The Snorkel were also part of that deal. But The Revenge of Frankenstein is really the one that kind of set the precedent for what would come for Hammer after that. And the film had been adapted in a couple of different places as well. It's been novelized by Philip J. Riley, which you can actually get now. It's currently in print, courtesy of Bear Manor Media. It was also adapted as a short story in the April 1967 issue of Monster Mania magazine, issue number three. It's got a great cover. I've got I've got it right here in my hands. It's got a great cover of Peter Cushing on the cover looking very creepy holding a skull it's a wonderful cover in the magazine it talks about the production of frankenstein created woman but there is a short story adaptation of revenge of frankenstein by chris fellner they're both okay but the film is so much better well we know what uh, derek thinks of the film casey uh what do you think of the film overall i've you know i've never shied away from the fact that 
the Hammer Frankenstein's are probably like my favorite films out of the entire, you know, Hammer library. And this is really ranks right up there. Having not seen this before, this has actually jumped up there to one of my more favorite uh, Frankenstein movies. It's right up there with Curse and uh, Frankenstein Created Woman. So I don't know that it would unseat anything on my top five right now, but it's definitely uh, one of my fonder Hammer memories now. Nice. Well, of the three uh, Frankenstein films I've seen of Hammer, this would solidly be the number two. I enjoyed Curse so much better than this film. I think it has a lot to do with the second in command on both films, and that's you know Dr. Cleave and Paul Kremke. I liked uh, Robert Urquhart's performance of Paul Kremke a lot better than I did Francis Matthews. I liked his turn, his morality turn in Curse, uh, whereas Dr. Cleave was pretty much a clone of Dr. Frankenstein in this film. Two sides of the same coin. There wasn't any butting heads between the two of them, and I missed that in this film. I enjoyed Peter Cushing's performance immensely in this film. I, I really liked uh, Michael Gwynn, but if I had to, to say of the two, I, I prefer Curse much better than, than Revenge, but both of them miles beyond Brides. <laughs> so it would not nudge anything off my top five either from the beginning of time many men have sought the unknown delving into dark regions where lie those truths which are destined to destroy of all these eerie adventurers into darkness none was more driven by insatiable curiosity nor went further into the unknown than the unforgettable Baron Frankenstein. So infamous were his exploits that his name stands forever as a symbol of all that is shocking, unspeakable, forbidden. Thus, in our day, any story which chills the soul and freezes the blood is truly a tale of Frankenstein. Have either of you seen the pilot... Tales of Frankenstein, the pilot television show Tales of Frankenstein. I have not. No. So while this was in production and things were rolling on Revenge of Frankenstein, Hammer was also working on getting a television show off the ground uh, called Tales of Frankenstein. And they managed to have one episode, the pilot episode, produced, and it never went anywhere. And a lot of people say it was a pretty miserable experience. Now, I believe it's part of the special features on the recent Blu-ray release from Curse of Frankenstein. It also turns up on a lot of discount DVD sets. Uh, I believe at one point it was included in a lot of public domain sets, but I don't know if it's really truly public domain or not. I remember picking it up for the first time for like two ninety nine on a DVD and a cardboard sleeve in the Halloween section at Target one year. Uh, it's pretty easy to get your hands on. It's probably online all over the place. Uh, Kurt Siodmak wrote it and was involved with it, and he did a lot of work for Universal, did the original Wolfman, things like that. So while Hammer may have had some success with Revenge of Frankenstein and was able to keep the film franchise going based on that, they never really made it to television with Frankenstein, which, I don't know, that that Dr. Frankenstein in that particular version, not nearly as good as Peter Cushing. So, And I'm sure that probably had a lot to do with the lack of success in the television show. You've got to have a strong lead as as your Frankenstein. You do. And, you know, the monster in that did look a lot like... Uh, Universal's Frankenstein. So, I mean, they were kind of, I don't know, kind of maybe banking on that. I don't know. 
it just never really went anywhere and for better or worse i'd recommend watching it though as a curiosity especially if you're a hardcore hammer fan just to kind of see a different take on the material intended for a different market well, I love Revenge of Frankenstein. Still my number two. Still one of my favorite sequels of all time. I like it just a little bit better than Curse because I think everybody's comfortable in their roles and everything. And uh, so there. <laughs> well, I, I I do recommend checking it out. It, it oh, was yeah. it was a lot of fun to watch. Um, I just side with Curse a little more. Sure. Well, I see what you're saying about having you know the the morality play with the two doctors. Yeah. And. In terms of striking just visual, iconic Frankenstein monster-looking things, you've got Lee is a better monster than Gwen. I mean, Lee is obviously the monster, whereas Gwen could pass for like a real person if he didn't get knocked around and have brain damage. So, well, I could agree with that. I really get into the story aspect of the of that the Doctor is, you know, nearly perfected his process with oh, yeah. this monster in the second movie. I, that really speaks to me too. So, oh yeah, oh yeah. Well, that is The Revenge of Frankenstein. It is, I believe, on DVD right now. I wonder if it's still in print. It is for less than $10 through Amazon, uh, at least here in the States. Overseas, I'm not sure how it's available. Uh, The DVD is pretty bare bones. There's not a lot on it. It's got a trailer for it on it. It's got a trailer for Earth versus the Flying Saucers and The Bride. I don't know how they picked those two movies of a trailers <laughs> on this disc because they're like Sting is Dr. Frankenstein. I don't understand. Whatever. I don't get it. And then other than that, though, the DVD is easy to get your hands on. You can track that down. Yeah. I'm not exactly positive, but I'm pretty sure this is one that you could even find in a lot of places like uh, uh, Big Lots and things like that in your bargain stores for like under five bucks. Yeah. I mean, it's easy to get your hands on. I mean, you can stream it on Amazon for a couple bucks, too. So, But definitely check it out. Yeah, and let us. And if you do check it out, contact us and let us know what you think of it by calling us at a phone number that Scott knows more than I do. Um, <laughs> I, I'm sorry, I wasn't. I wasn't prepared. You can call us at area code seven six five two zero three nineteen fifty one. Says as he brings the website up, yeah. which it can be found at nineteen fifty one downplace dot com. You can also uh, catch us on Twitter at twitter.com slash 1951downplace. And we're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash 1951downplace. Now, if you go over to our website at 1951downplace.com and click on the episode list link across the top, you'll see a list of all the episodes that we've done, uh, which movies we've covered, that sort of thing. We need to update that, however, because there's been a slight change in programming for next month. Uh, we are bumping the mummy up into the May slot, and Scott will not be joining us next time. I will be in the penalty box um, just because mm-hmm. I didn't like Brides of Dracula. They have um, penalized me one episode, so yes. I, I will not be on next month's episode. Sure, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> I just that, gotta, I'm sorry. I just got to say, I went out and looked at the list right there, and I ha- I broke out a cold sweat there for a second because I mistakenly looked at May 2012 and thought we were going to have to watch the old Dark House again. Uh no. Uh uh-uh. no. No. Uh. So, <laughs> so are are we moving the uh, men of Sherwood Forest to June? We'll do the mummy in May and the men of Sherwood Forest in June and then July will be the listener pick month. Is that how that works? That's how that works. So yep, it'll be the two of you on your own next month. I think we can handle it. 
I think so. I mean, it's just a guy wrapped in like wrappings, a dead guy walking around. We can handle that. Sure. We got Peter Cushing at our side. You know, he'll he'll help us out. <laughs> I will raise a tropical drink in your honor. Yeah, see, that's really what Scott's doing. I wasn't going to go there, but someday he's going to be on a cruise. <sighs> <laughs> yep. My wife and I will be celebrating our 20th wedding anniversary in the Caribbean. I see where your priorities lie. I know, right? Damn straight. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of things coming up in the future, uh, at the very beginning of May, the first weekend of May, May in the 3rd, future, where we'll all be. <laughs> yes, exactly. Thank you, Criswell. Wait a minute. That's the other guy. Anyway, <laughs> speaking of what's coming up, May 3rd, 4th, and 5th, here in the Portland, Oregon area, is the annual H.P. Lovecraft Film Festival and Cthulhu Con. That's going to be happening here at the Hollywood Theater. I've gone every year for at least the past 10 years. And every once in a while, there is a hammer-like connection. They've shown a couple of the Quatermass films over the years. This year, they're showing Prince of Darkness, uh, the John Carpenter film. I bring it up because it was written by John Carpenter using the pen name Martin Quatermass, and he intentionally did that. Uh, he has a lot of respect for Nigel Neal uh, and, and tried to bring some of that sensibility to this film. Uh, Prince of Darkness is one of my favorite John Carpenter films. It's going to be a 35mm print with a video introduction from Carpenter himself talking about the movie, so I'm really excited about that. What, the intro's not on a print? No, I, I, they didn't go shoot a 35mm print of Carpenter talking about 30 seconds about why he likes <laughs> the movie. No, they did not. Uh, but there's a handful of movies that I'm really looking forward to seeing here, and it's just a great time. So if anybody's listening to this that happens to be in the Portland area or will be in the Portland area at that time, I'm going to be there all three days. I'd love to see you. I'm going to be on a panel as well. Uh, one of the panels will be talking about podcasting. I'll be on a panel with some uh, fellow podcasters. And I'm going to be making a special announcement at that panel regarding the future of my own podcasting. So I hope to see you there if you can make it. Between now and the next episode of 1951 Downplace, be sure to check us out on our own podcast. Casey's at Bloody Good Horror. Scott's at Disney Indiana. And uh, like I said, I've got something coming up. So we need Could a tagline. You know, we need some sort of like closing kind of hammer like thing. <laughs> <laughs> we don't need a closing line kind of thing. We don't need that. <laughs> Hammer don't hurt. <laughs> too legit. Too legit to quit. Hi, hi. I don't know what's worse, going out on that or going out to the theme song of Joni Loves Chachi. Oh, gotta go with the, with the, the Chach. The Chach. <laughs> I, and I think I've told you, Scott, but I, I'll tell you, Casey, as well. You don't know how hard it's been to not go to eBay and buy the back issue of the magazine Dynamite that has a cover story of Joni Loves Chachi. Just to have. <laughs> <laughs>
And now, ladies and gentlemen, I think it's time for Derek to announce his new podcast is the Joni Loves Chachi Podcast. <laughs> it's the Chachi Cast. We talked about this. It's Derek Loves Chachi. <laughs> Wanted to keep it a secret until May 3rd. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. News like that's just too big to hold in. Should we go back to MC Hammer, please? <laughs> <laughs>